Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 64 of the Design Exec Club Town Hall. We're in the USA today, and uh, I'm joined here by some incredible minds. And, and what's interesting, we're not joined by some people who, for a range of reasons, weren't able to be included in the call. They were invited to the call. They weren't able to be here for a myriad of reasons, and we're going to actually cover some of that when we talk about inclusion. One thing is actually about making sure that you've invited people. The other one is making sure that you've worked out how can you shift around your times? How can you, how can you accommodate people who have other needs and other priorities? So we'll get into that. Um, but the first thing I want to do is, Rick Bell, I want to ask you, what does inclusion mean to you? How would you describe inclusion? Um, as the opposite of exclusion. Oh, well, well thank you. That, that's, so, so what's exclusion then, if you're going to play that game? <laughs> Yeah, you know, ex exclusion um, was keeping people out. Inclusion, you know, uh, as an opposite is letting people in. Uh, exclusionary zoning, uh, ex excluding people from participating in academic life, uh, quotas, uh, uh, quotas on immigration. Um, uh, so I, I, I think if we were talking about uh, what characterizes inclusion, it would be a sense of welcome and participation and, uh, and, and uh, a, a movement toward, uh, uh, if not equality, equity. Mm -hmm. All right, and, and actually equity is our topic for next month. And so what I wanna do is find out where do we get to the boundary about equity? And we'll say, let's park that for next month. And right. just let's continue focusing in on inclusion because they're, they're very different things, equity and inclusion. You know, the, the, the anecdote I would tell from my job uh, working in public works in New York City was uh, from the design of libraries. Libraries are a great public resource uh, for, for everything, not just as a repository of information, but for information about uh, immigration, immunization, vocational training, English as a second language, everything to make people who are new to a community or new to the US uh, feel welcome, new to New York feel welcome. Yet the architecture uh, and the design uh, and the setup can be very off-putting. So creating a sense of welcome through design that speaks to the fact that the library isn't just for the people who've been there before, but for people who've never stepped in the door uh, was, was uh, a major priority of, of the administration when I was working there. And I could talk about the details of that, but uh, the goal was uh, deliberately uh, to create inclusion through design. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's really interesting about the idea that topic of designing something for people who haven't been there before. You know, it's uh, we find that with wayfinding and particularly around digital design. You know, if you go, a lot of people say, oh, but you've put the same sign in three places, you know, the same link um, is in three places. And I think that's a really interesting thing to, to turn around and say, well, sometimes an inclusion policy is actually about multiple attempts on letting people know that they're included, not just a singular attempt in there. Um, uh, Dan, I want to go across to you and ask about inclusion, and I also want to go focus that on in that world of universal design. Like, you, you've worked in this space for for a long time, and we've previously spoken about well, is there one person that you're designing for? Is there a thousand different people? But you're include you've been including all of the different types of people in all of the work that you've been doing. Give us some insights. 
Yeah, well, I've always thought and had the belief that design is a form can be a form of segregation, and you don't have to touch the people to exclude them. You just have to change the design. So there are like hundreds and thousands and a million examples of that. But <clears throat> what I would generally found offensive very early in my career, at least it didn't make sense, not logical, is that uh, I'd work with companies who would tell us, here's our consumer. And it was a very tight and narrow definition. And you know that's who we're designing for. And I would say, no, this is who we're designing for. And it was really a, a bit of a, uh, you know, head bashing culture clash between the way marketing groups who are thinking about their consumers and the, as a designer, the way you'd have to design for the entire spectrum. So there was always a lot of um, either disagreement or head bashing or, you know, we would, uh, I would do some investigation into some uh, people not right down the middle and get the reaction that, oh, that's not our consumer. And I would say, yes, it is consumer. And, um, and that's because there used to be the term of the aspirational client. You know, it's like, we want to be an aspirational brand and we have aspirational customers and we, and it was all of the, the like, it, things have just been coded up. They weren't going into the data and saying, well, actually, we know the people who are using our product fit this profile rather than how you're thinking about it on demographics or psychographics or whichever graphics it was. These are the people we know are using. These are the challenges they've got and we need to go solve that. So we often were referred to like a third state as well with inclusion of being discluded, which is different than being excluded because excluded, and, and so this is one of the things I've found particularly about Australia and the US. The US seems to have a lot more binary you know, something's either demonstrably on or it's demonstrably off. We have, there's like soft racism in Australia, which is a way that you can disclude people without actually excluding them. You don't have apartheid. You don't have a policy that says Negro is not welcome. You just socially don't make people welcome. And I, and I think that this discluding is a, is a very interesting part. We know what inclusion is, but we also know what disclusion is and we know what exclusion is. Exclusion is... We, you're just not welcome. The other one is behaviourally, you're made to feel less welcome. And, and, I, and I think that's a, some of what you're talking about there, Dan, which is that they're turning around, they're talking about, well, this is who we think our customer is. It's almost their ignorance, their filter is actually stopping them realising the other people that they're not enfranchising in that process there. So I've, I've, yeah, I've, And the downside, of course, is that, you know, if you don't uh, design for the spectrum, you don't sell to the spectrum. Yep. So, you know, including everyone is, is good for everyone. Uh, I know that's redundant, but you know, it has, you know, it's a win-win situation. Well, actually it, it, it does sound redundant, but often we need, do need to double state things so that we actually get that second confirmation. Otherwise some of that disclusion can happen, that soft exclusion rather than hard exclusion. John, how about for you? What's inclusion for you? Oh, man. I've been thinking about this one ever since you sent out the first email, and I, I do <laughs> not have a concrete answer to it. 
I have, welcome to my brain, I have about 7,000 different thoughts going on at the same time right now. Okay. Um, the first one being that I came to this one fully intending to just listen or, well, spend the majority of my time listening. But then suddenly we show up and we have five Caucasian males talking about inclusion. And I struggle with that, frankly, um, with, the, with where we're at today. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the things that I've learned in the last little while, um, it, it just through the, the social changes that are going on a macro level, and many things that have gone on in my life on a personal level, um, this this one causes my 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 guts to roil a little bit um, because I just don't feel right sitting here trying to define what inclusion is when it I have been able to live the majority of my life not having to worry about exclusion to the point where it's unconscious. Um, but you know, once you start to see these things, you can't unsee it. And as a designer, I do feel like, you know, you know we as a group have a, the ability to elicit change on, on that front through, through empathy and through an, and trying to, to learn, um, which brings me back around to wanting to, wanting to listen during this. <laughs> I'm talking circularly now. Um, so with that said, um, what does inclusion mean to me? Um, I'm, 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 inclusion for me is, is just simply letting everybody on, every person, every race, sex, color, creed, to feel comfortable doing what they want, you know, what they do in their life without remorse, without judgment, without criticism, um, and without being blocked. Um, I, I don't know if I can, uh, you know, I could keep listing off the words that, that could that include, that are included in that, on that list. Um, but for me, it's, it's, this is a, a very tough, a very broad one that I, is hard for me to narrow down. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm rambling on this, but... Uh... Let me say, let me say, because you, you've hit the nail on the head, it, it never sits comfortable with me that the rooms that we create are filled with not the diversity that I would like to, that I would have liked to have had. Hmm. Okay, so while you were talking, I just drew this little, this little diagram here. Yep. So... The problem in the past was that we had that there were circles where it was always the people inside the circle that were talking, nobody could get in the circle. And then we've got what we're doing here, which is where four or five, you know, well-meaning people, we'll say five well-meaning people, kind of because I drew four little arrows, we're five well-meaning people and we're trying to reach out. Yep. But I think the, the goal is that we have to work out how to pull the segments of the circle apart to create the in-paths for people to feel that they can come in. Yep. And I think, I think that to me is, if we're going to talk about inclusion, we need to do that. Rick, I remember seeing efforts that you did with the Centre for Architecture, which was 
The Center for Architecture in New York, to me, was one of the most inclusive places I've ever been to because it created a forum where architects and people allied with the built space were welcomed in to be in a melting pot of ideas, sharing of knowledge and exchange. And that to me was such an inclusive process there. I know it, 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 it enabled me- it still to, is. <laughs> Well, it still is, yeah, yeah. And, and it enabled me to actually get a foothold in the New York design community in the built space that otherwise would have been prohibited. I'll, I'll let you know, the Royal Institute of British Architects doesn't have the same capacity for me to enter. I can't, it's very difficult to get into a conversation around architecture in London at the Institute of Architects. It's very easy to get one in New York. And I, and I think that's an astounding legacy that you and your colleagues created. Yeah. And there's an opportunity that the Royal Institute of British Architects are yet to go, go into. Well, a, a couple of ways I could take the conversation. I, I think what I liked about the Center for Architecture is uh, from the get-go, we said that it was a place for uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, transsectoral discourse. And, and, you know, those are just words, you know, how, how do you do that? So we said anyone who needed a place to do meetings could do so for free. And that included... Uh, National Organization of Minority Architects in New York, NICOBA, New York Council of Black Architects, uh, and other groups that, um, you know, were, were hard pressed to find a place just to get together. Uh, young architects who would meet um, uh, at a bar, you know, it's great to meet at a bar, but ultimately, if you're not, you know, ordering something from the bar, you get kicked out and it's noisy and you can't really have a discussion. Um, so, um, from, from the very beginning, you know, the Structural Engineers Association of New York was there. Uh, uh, other groups that weren't architects were there doing their programs. We had theater, we had dance, uh, we had music. Um, and, and that was deliberate. And the names were on the door in equal size font of all those organizations. There were places that just used it as a mail drop, you know, organizations that might not have had public meetings, but needed something other than someone's apartment to justify their not-for-profit aegis. So uh, that continues. Uh, you know, Ben Prosky is executive director. I mean, it's closed for the pandemic, reopening in the fall, but the idea that many, many things can go on in a place. And we learned that from being, you know, the poor cousins of the Municipal Arts Society at the Villard Houses in the Urban Center, which had a similar goal, but was, both through the architectural expression uh, of, 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 you know, that Renaissance-like palace on Madison Avenue, as well as the uh, uh, nature of the use of the space, uh, who could exhibit there, what could be done there. Uh, from the get-go at the Center for Architecture, we had freeze, we had all sorts of things that made, you know, one late night reveler say, you know, but for all this architecture stuff, this would be a pretty good club. But what I really want to talk about is London, you know, because it's fascinating to me that NLA, you know, I don't want to talk about Reba. We could talk about uh, uh, that if you really want to later on. But um, NLA is, uh, I, I thought, always the go-to place for discussions about architecture other than the foundation in the old days um, and, and the AA. Uh, and, and the move to cold drop yards uh, is a fascinating um, uh, uh, gesture 
uh, both geographic, uh, uh, what it means about neighborhood and, and, and audience. So, uh, you know, uh, should the Center for Architecture move to Brooklyn? Uh, maybe. Yeah, and it's it's a bit, and, and so there's a what happens next conversation, but there's yeah. it was just this openness. It was actually, and and this was something I found as I went to go because I I launched a Chicago Design Awards and a San Francisco Design Awards. Chicago wasn't open to somebody from outside Chicago coming in to go and run the awards with them. Okay, it was. It was the number of times it was like, but you're not from Chicago. Would be, and so there wasn't an openness. It wasn't, we include everybody. A city that, of that sounds, shoulders. Like, that sounds like Chicago having grown up there. Okay. <laughs> which, which is fine. We, I decided not to continue with the Chicago Design Awards. One, because they weren't open to the idea. They weren't embracing it. Whereas the cities that we're in are cities that have embraced it. And except there's one city that we that we're enduring with that hasn't in, hasn't embraced us, and I think it has to do with the degree of maturity of of some cities, and and this also fits in maturity of organisations, maturity of individuals. Brisbane is a very difficult city for us to go run the awards in. Now, last night it was announced that Brisbane will be holding the Olympics in twenty whenever. Yeah? Twenty six. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a no. There goes um, uh, Paris, um, uh, Los Angeles, and then to Brisbane. So it's like whenever. It's a long. Uh, it's eleven years away. Which okay. Now, I know in those eleven years that Brisbane will change its personality, and the Olympics will help it to become a more open city because they have to embrace everybody that's there. So to me, there's hope. A hopeitarian in me comes through. So they're then getting a more global, inclusive, how do we actually welcome everybody in, which is exactly what the Centre for Architecture, which is what I've been doing with Driven by Design and what I've been doing with the Design Exec Club. But even though I'm doing it, we've still got five white males here on the call and we don't have diversity. So there's both a dilemma there, but there's also an opportunity because it's the action of five white males will have more potency in solving it than if we had a diverse group here who were saying, well, we don't have to actually do anything because there's already a net representation of diversity. So it's evident the fact that some of our calls that we have a very diverse community and other times we don't, there's still work to be done. Okay, so I think I think John, the, the the signal there is actually yeah, it's not the healthiest circumstance, but it reminds us that there's work that we still need to go do, and well, then it's yeah, it, it's it's important. not healthy or unhealthy to me. It, it's it, it's just it may, it's all I was expressing was the level of discomfort that I have um, because I'm not, uh, I I don't feel like I have authority to be talking about it now. On the other side of that. I don't think that there's anybody that has more responsibility to call out or that has the ability to stop or, or to elicit change than people, you know, the, the five kind of people that are in this call by telling other individuals to stop doing what they're doing. Like there, there's, there is power in, in the, the example that I have is just, you know, let, let's just um, um, 
objectification of women and the idea that you, you can sit there and you can be talking to a friend over a beer and he starts going into locker room talk and if, if I sit there and listen to it and just let it happen, I'm complicit. Or I can act as somebody that has responsibility to say, hey, dude, that's enough. It's time for that shit to stop. And yeah, and so for me, that's you know, that's why I, I, I'm I'm petering on this. I want to listen, but also understanding that through listening, I'm going to learn so that I can I know where I can draw lines to help at least push the lines forward. Um, because I, like I, I also recognize the the idea that you know, we're in a position with the power to to help force that change. Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, than others on this planet have. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think that's a fair point there. Ronnie, you've been doing something I didn't let uh, John do. I intervened and uh, he had to talk to us. And you've been listening for the last 20 minutes as we've been going in this, okay? So, inclusion for you. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. And, and John, I had some of the... My first reaction was some of the first thoughts as well. I wanted I wanted to talk about a range of things here because I, I approached this from the negative and then started to realize um, there are some interesting nuances to this whole thing. I was just at the Architecture Biennale in Venice mm -hmm. and that is Piazza San Marco literally today with no tourists, no flights from Asia, no cruise ships. And Venice has now taken on a completely different face and and this has always been struggling in recent years with this problem of too many tourists and they are literally wearing the city out and wearing the city down and the idea of exclusivity the opposite of being inclusive and having venice open to absolutely anybody in the world and everyone who wants to come there which is actually sinking and destroying one of the most beautiful places on earth um, versus actually limiting access to a place like that and saying that if we make it exclusive, it's going to retain what it is and mm -hmm. some of that that what you know that charm that or or just the survival of the city and and the architecture biennale uh, this year. The topic is how can we live together, and there are some absolutely fascinating um, displays and shows in there from the you know world architects around that topic. So that to me was kind of interesting looking at um, inclusion through the lens of exclusion and exclusive and luxury and the fact that there are entire brands out there that, that thrive and survive on the fact of being exclusive, right? Exclusive resorts, exclusive clothing, exclusive accessories, and not wanting to actually be out there for everybody and they differentiate themselves by price. To get to transportation and Hyperloop, we are trying to be egalitarian. We do not want to have a first class compartment and a business class compartment, compartment um, and then an economy section. And the idea is actually to make a transportation system that is acceptable and as, as luxury for every single passenger that comes through and gets that passenger experience. But if I then reflect that to the airlines, I couldn't have afforded my ticket to Venice last week if, I, if the plane was divided equally. It's the people in the front of the plane who have the luxury experience and pay the luxury high-end prices 
that are actually allowing me to sit in the economy class section for the price that I can actually travel. So I think there's some, to me, there's some very interesting nuances here where inclusion and exclusion and not necessarily a good and bad aspect. Um, what does the world look like if, if we're all a bunch of white uh, male architects? Well, we've all been to an event where uh, during the intermission, we go to the restrooms and there are lines and lines of women outside the restrooms and the men go past the women's restroom to get to the no line at the men's room, right? So we know what happens if, if white guys just put blinders on and not, not inclusive in the design approach. Um, I also wanna talk about, uh, I think what's being touched on here about where we stand as designers in how we hire and how we build teams. And I see us that one of the problems that we have is that we're at the end of the food chain. We're not at the beginning of the food chain. And I'm hiring right now and we've been looking for, for people and candidates. And honestly, if I didn't see the person's name and didn't see a photograph of them, my only focus, and it always is, is what is your work like? Do you do the work? Do you deliver? What is how would you fit into this particular team? It's got nothing to do with the ethnicity of the person, the sex of the person, the sexual uh, preference of the, of the person that we're looking at and wanting to hire. But the problem that we're finding is that the education system doesn't supply us with a good variety or that is representative of society. So we simply don't have enough good designers to be able to choose. And so we're ending up with a bias at the end of the food chain. And the problem, I think, and I'm not trying to pass the buck here because I think, you know, as we've said, we have the ability to, and we should be, and we can influence where that starts. Um, and, you know, I can, I can go on, but I think, you know, there's some interesting things happening at museums, museums, which are now having shows that show minority artists that, show and deal with some of the very difficult societal uh, issues around um, uh, uh, equity, but you said that's gonna be an, a future topic. Um, but I think that the fact that that dialogue, that discourse is happening at a gallery, an art gallery and a museum where kids are being taken on class trips and now being exposed to those kind of things where child can go in there and say, oh, that person looks like me. Oh, this issue is something that I relate to. And it's not an exclusive white mid-century modern like view of the, of the world. And I think that's where it starts. It starts with the education system and hopefully that then trickles up through. Yeah. But we and have to come from the top down as well. So a lot of things there, sorry, unpacking. No, no, no. So, and, and what I love is because you, you've just uh, gone and expanded the breadth of uh, the dimensions that we can go talk about there, which I appreciate that. One of the things that interests me, and I and I, I know when I say this word or, or this phrase, I'm going to go, oh, that's clumsy, but it, it kind of describes it. There's, there's some design studios that seem to have a spice rack of team members where there's great diversity, and there's others that seem to have white bread, and that's it. And and so I think. And, and it's inter interesting as I see, and it's, I don't think it's done on purpose. It's just, a, it's how things 
wind up. You know, I, I wound up at one stage where I was the only um, uh, non-LGBTIQ person in the company. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't put a policy into hire everybody who, who was LGBTIQ. It just was that happened. Okay, and you go, oh, and then the balance changes and as people move on. So would have I been there as, oh, you're trying to go and create a particular culture of bias? Sometimes statistics actually wind up just being unfortunate and you can take a snapshot and they're not helpful. But as far as if we're trying to go get the diversity of, of design outcomes, we need to have diversity of cultures who are working out on, on the design problem. So what you're talking about, Ronnie, is very important. I know that Edio Pirates particularly spoken about that where he was talking about the some of those structural problems about the feeder paths that are in there. And I know there's a lot of work that's been done to stimulate the imaginations of people who are not from the current catchment for designers, but actually to increase the breadth of people who imagine that design may be an industry that they would want to get into. And I think that's I, such an important thing. Yeah, but I think it's, um, I would add to that though, it is also about the education of white males and and they need to be thinking outside the box as well. And, and yes, it would be great if we could have, what do we have for African-American 13 point um, uh, whatever percent, you know, 13.6% of our staff would be African-American and 1% and Asian and, and you know, 30% Latino. But if we can't do, we can't do that. And especially in small teams like, like we have, I mean, we're just not big enough to, to represent each group but to educate ourselves, be educated, be open-minded and open ourselves up to uh, being inclusive. Yeah. Dan, I, when I look at the SVA Masters in Branding program, that appears to have the spice racket. It, it's not a homogenous cultural group that's doing that. It seems to be extraordinarily diverse from the people that I've seen. Why do you think that that's got the that it's attracting people with that diversity as against some other circumstances where we see it's more of a homogeneous uh, population. What do you think might be a driver there? Any insights? Well, I think, you know, it's an attractive program and we do get uh, more females very often than we have males in the class. Mm -hmm. So the ratio is maybe like a three to two or, you know, we tend to get a little more, a few more females, but it is an international group. And we do accept people uh, from from anywhere. Um, it's going to be interesting now that we are online and offering. Now it's going to be a hybrid for next year. This year was completely online. You would think we would be able to get people from all corners of the earth, and it would be a lot more inclusive. Uh, I do think, though, bringing this back to design and engineering, I do think that just adding people from different backgrounds. Like for instance, just adding, and I was just writing about this a little bit earlier, adding females to a design team, an engineering team does not necessarily make it female friendly because the cultures that have evolved in the fields of engineering and design have evolved on, you know, from, from a male perspective. And that wasn't anyone's bad intention, but the cultures that we now work within may be biased to males and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, biased against females. Uh, just because males and females are wired quite differently and they work differently in the culture, the way they interact, etc. So uh, it really is going to take a lot of 
uh, introspection and soul searching to understand how we're going to change those uh, cultures for the products and problem, maybe the same with architecture, but I'm more familiar with design and engineering, product design and engineering. But yeah, simply adding females to the team doesn't necessarily solve your problems or simply adding people from other cultures doesn't necessarily solve, solve the um, exclusion problem. And I, would, I would go as far as saying that I don't know if, like, as a designer and for the last 20 plus years, um, I, I can't think of any project that I've worked on that there was ever any intention of exclusion. There's always like there, there's always a some a sense of positive intention on the outset, and you know, there's biases within our world that we're just that I'm starting to understand and, and starting to see, and that have just been baked into the world around us that we that we keep perpetuating situations. Um, and it, we, we've touched on this a few times. It's like just this idea that you, I don't think that there's, yeah, I'm sure there's some, but I, I think the numbers are quite small of any person that goes out to intentionally try and create something, it's, especially if it's a creative endeavor or they're, they're trying to build something, whether it's a building or a product or, you know, whatever that they're they're going out and saying I, I want to exclude from that now on the other side of it uh, mark you touched on this earlier as well is you know, we can't, it can't well can we even design for everybody like you you had touched on the idea that we have we we had aspirational customers you know you had this certain you know, this group of people or this type of person or whatever that you were trying to design for. And, you know, I, I can talk about products that I've worked on, you know, in the bike industry, it, we, we focused on road bikes that didn't include mountain bikes and hybrid bikes. And as soon as we started trying to include all of those, it created a financial and engineering conundrum. So, you know, which brings me back around to the other thing that all three, you know, both all, all Rick, Dan, and Ronnie had to, touched on as well is money. Like our biggest enemy in in, in inclusion and exclusion is cash. You know, what what stops you from building a building that include can include everybody, time and money, and and both of them are effectively come boils down to money. You know what stops you from designing and creating something that is inclusive of everybody. You know, we, we, we have this world that is kind of focused on the middle 80% and there's, you know, 10% on either side that you can't. So, you, and you, you're touching on some things which are, which are resonating. When it comes to safety standards, we set minimum standards. If the product can't get to that, it's not allowed in the market. Okay, right. so, so we say it has to hit this bar. But that's different than turning around and saying, I want to make something which might be designed and biased to a particular group. So you've still got all of those health and safety factors in there, but you're saying, actually, this is going to appeal. And let's take a skateboard. A skateboard is not going to appeal to everybody of every mobility class. 
Okay, so it's designed for people who have incredibly good balance and who have a desire to see can they go fast or can they do tricks? Like they, it's a particular niche set. To make universal design for a skateboard for everybody of every mobility capacity would be ridiculous. So we, we go and we say, well, you can't design a skateboard in an inclusive for everybody. Yep. And, but if it, was a, if it was a mobility device designed by a government department, I would expect there to be a skateboard, a motor scooter, a wheelchair, a whole bunch of design solutions that came out, not just the skateboard. And so I think there, that's where we've got certain types of organisations we'd have a particular expectation that they had a universal solution, not just one inappropriate device and say, look, we've designed something. Am I in bad territory here, Rick, Dan? Help me out. Am I... Am I well, you know, I think, I, I think inclusive design gets misinterpreted as one thing fits everybody. Now, I think that's quite different in architecture because you've got one building, that one building better fit everyone or a public park or, you know, things. But in terms of products, there are some very specific products and some very specific markets and some very specific tar target audience. Um, you don't have to put everybody on a skateboard, but there should be some alternative to the skateboard or some uh, correlation, you know, corollary product to a skateboard so that everyone can have some fun, right? So I think that's where the inclusion, you know, you have to come up a few levels to, uh, before you define inclusion, what does inclusion mean? You know, I brought up uh, the NLA's move to cold drop yards and not to belabor the mm -hmm. inaccessibility of the vessel at, uh, by Heatherwick at, at, at Hudson Yards, but uh, which is in, you know, a, a totem for the opposite of uh, inclusive design. There's been one elevator, you know, forget the jumpers, but it's uh, just a nightmare as a symbol for uh, people who can't navigate stairs. Uh, on the other hand, also by Heatherwick, uh, this time with Sydney Nielsen, uh, the little island just opened in uh, uh, or just off of Manhattan in the Hudson River. And um, the ramp system is phenomenal, you know, and it's not just for people in wheelchairs. I've been there twice uh, to check it out from a point of view of handicap accessibility. And, and uh, there are people with wheelchairs and they can get pretty much everywhere. Uh, they can get actually everywhere. Um, but so can people with strollers, you know, and so can people with uh, a, a cane. Uh, we're all temporarily able-bodied. So the idea of mobility uh, is, is part of it. The different means of, uh, of movement, you know, Mark, in, in, in inviting us all to participate in the discussion, I think you used the old saying, um, you know, a fish doesn't know that it's in the water. Mm. And I, I thought it probably does you know because the fish certainly does know when it's not in the water you know and and the inclusion exclusion thing of fish out of water when it's on a boat deck or uh, on land doesn't live for long you know and it's flopping around and is obviously having a hard time breathing uh, which is another story uh, we should get to uh, I'll go into that because you're absolutely right the fish knows when it's in the not case, it doesn't know when it's in the normative case. 
Yeah. So, you know, you know where that saying came from, or at least one of the first recorded uses of it, a fish out of water. No. It was Chaucer, I think in 1483. He was talking about a ship's captain uh, knowing every port, but on land, unable to ride a horse. Fish out of water. Uh, like a fish out of water as sat on his horse. Uh, this has been around for a while, you know, as the idea of discomfort, uncomfort, uh, uh, not, not, not being there. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm with someone now who's in a wheelchair all the time, you know, 100% of the time. Um, and it's been kind of amazing seeing where you can go and where you can't go. Yeah. And, you know, other people have been there long before me and, and, and people I know are in wheelchairs obviously, and, and her experience, uh, not vicariously, um, amazingly inhospitable. One positive sign, I was on the subway yesterday in New York City, and at each stop, the PA system says now, this is an accessible stop, not at each stop, but at each stop that's accessible. Um, and it says uh, where the ramp is, you know, go to the back yes. of the train. You know, which is phenomenal. You know, that's that's mayor's office of people with disabilities. That's a lot of people uh, advocating for you know more information about something that should be normal because it's not again just the person in the wheelchair. It's all of us who are you know getting old and 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 uh, less mobile. Yep. And and the let's say the thousand hours it would have taken to go work that out will will have been multiplied into hundreds of thousands of hours of journey time saved by people who have uh, mobility needs, you know, or varying mobility needs, which is awesome. Ronnie, I want to go and ask you uh, uh, if you can recall an experience we had in a bar and there was some MMA fighting on the screen. <laughs> this, this to me was one of the most interesting experiences that I've ever had. So we're in, in, in New York, we're out with some friends and it's a very nice little you know, village bar. And the guy that we're with is involved in promoting MMA fighters. You know? And he asked the barkeeper, will you put the fight, one of my fighters on the screen? And all of a sudden, this little nice cozy village bar turns into now being a sports bar with violence on the screen. And, and Ronnie and I are both there. We're wincing because I'm not into blood sports. Do you remember this experience? I do remember the experience. <laughs> and we're going, my hood's just going, do I walk out? Do I turn my back, what, what do I do? And you and I had a conversation about Hyperloop transport technologies where I said, you and I, this isn't what we like, but this, the people who find comfort in this are going to be your passengers. Right. And so there's and, uh, yeah. inclusion in the scope of your thought, which is not people like me, it's actually people beyond me. And that's a very interesting, how do you get to people beyond my my thought and and can we give people an environment where they can actually make the choice of how they want to shape that environment so because now of um high definition screens that actually can even cover serve uh, curved surfaces we can actually fill an entire capsule if we wanted to with 
high resolution screens and allow the people who are passengers to decide the experience they want to have. Now that's great if you're with a group of like-minded people and you all, all want to watch the MMA fight while you're going from New York City to Boston, terrific. <laughs> it's a little more problematic if half the passengers <laughs> are completely adverse to that. But the idea that now we can give people environments that they can control. And I think one of the, I think that's one of the beauties of that type of environment as opposed to if we think of some of the urban housing and housing and accommodation design problems that we have, that the family unit today and the way that people live today is very, very different from the way in which houses and structures were actually built and purpose built when they were. But it's very difficult to just on a whim change a house. It's very easy for us now inside a Hyperloop capsule to change the environment, change the atmosphere, change the sound, the sound effects. Do you wanna be underwater in your capsule experience? Do you wanna be on the surface of Mars? Do you wanna have a meditative space? Do you wanna be entertained? You know, those things are flexible. Think of a family unit now that maybe just has a single parent in one house well, the kids have now left the house and you have these structures that we're left with that no longer fit the need. And I think these are two really interesting uh, sort of design, design problems and challenges of what we have control over, what we can control and giving that to people to give them that inclusive feeling and experience, yeah. Okay, now you may, you may not have got to this part of your design consideration yet, but we've got the capsule going to Detroit. And we've got the MMA fight is on. <laughs> is it when everybody in the capsule says they want to watch it that it's allowed to be on? Is, so is it all in? Is it one person who takes it off? Or is it 50.1% that takes it <laughs> off, the, off the screens? And, and, and such an, or is it the in the preloading you say, this may have sports content in it, this one's got trees and the next capsule, if you wait for that one, it's got the event horizon out of interstellar in it. You know, it's like, it, 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 they're, they're interesting design considerations. How do you empower people? And because they're going to be stuck in a capsule with something that may be displeasurable. Right, or, or do you give people uh, an experience that is within their zone? Uh, as one option. And then if you're with a larger group of people, you can take over the entire capsule. So it's like, can you, do you limit it to the, the size of the group of people or the individual? And then you have options as to how you want to be able to change that experience. So I'm just, yeah, throwing ideas out there. And, and that, that, there's some of those interesting things about when you include people, what happens? Um, the previous two episodes of inclusion that we've done in the UK and also in Australia, we had extraordinarily diverse panels. It was, it was phenomenal. So this one here, the fact that we've got what might be seen as a less diverse panel, to me is really interesting. So John, your, your point that you're bringing up there, we don't know what we're gonna get when we actually turn around and get people on the day. Okay, so we then have to be present and we have to go, have to go handle it. But what I am hearing is that that idea of getting the circle, expanding it out so that people can come into the circle seems to be consistent for everybody. How do we, how do we welcome people in? 
But there's a point where you also need to grab the hand from the slightly reluctant person and usher them in because they don't believe that they belong in that circle. And that, that, that elevation process is such an, such an important thing. And, that, and that's one of the things that I think if you've lived with a degree of entitlement or privilege, you don't understand that there's a sticking point that you actually have to actively go out and grab somebody by the hand and say, I'm going to take you somewhere that you normally wouldn't take yourself. That to me is the sort of active engagement that white males should be having is actually saying, no, I can't necessarily change everything, but at least I can help promote you. I can help make sure positively include you. I can make sure that I'm doing things which are encouraging to get over whatever that sticking problem or inertia block is for you to get from outside whatever circle it is to inside and work out if you like it. Yeah, it's a very active way of you know, responding to Ronnie's statement earlier of, it, it, like, I, I believe that I've kind of been stuck in the negative aspect of this conversation, uh, as opposed to the positive aspect of it. And you know, in inclusion, I guess, rather than sitting here and feeling guilty about it, you know, that I need to be looking at it from the perspective that you're saying of, what can I do to reach out my hand? And, you know, say, come sit down, come talk to me. I'm open, you know, and, and you know, saying I'm open to listening and, and having a, a, the conversation. Um, you know, the, the positive versus negative is, uh, that's very relevant to my mindset for sure. Yeah, and, I, and I see, I see the design process similar to firemen. Firemen are actually, they're motivated by fires being out, but they have to go into fires to go put them out. So they have to go into danger's way to go get to the thing that they want. And, and so as designers, if we're trying to work out how to design inclusion, we're gonna to have to go into some uncomfortable spaces. We're gonna to have to learn about things that we don't even understand or our biases. We need to actually be prepared to stumble that we can actually go into the uncharted territory. We are prepared to go to a port and learn how to ride a horse to go back to Chaucer there. Yeah? It's, the, it's the captain who is brave enough to say, I might be the master of the seas, but I now need to become the master of this thing called a horse so that I can explore horizons on land, not just horizons on, on the sea. That to me is such an important thing that we remember. And I, I'm not sure that we're actually letting everybody know that is part of the practice and also part of the pursuit when we begin a project. What do you think, guys? And there was deaf, deafening silence. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this, this is making me think. I, I, gave, I was coaching a thesis team at SVA in the branding program. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's a tough program, especially thesis. There's a lot of work and a lot of anxiety and... Um, out of emotions going on. And what my pep talk was is, and I do this at workshops as well, is that you've got to learn how to be uncomfortable. You have to be okay with being unco uncomfortable. Mm. Once, once you get over that, you're fine. You can innovate, you can do uh, you know, a thousand things, but what is the toughest thing to do is make people okay with being uncomfortable. Mm. I, I, I 
think that there's something really interesting in there because if everything is so inclusive and so warm and fuzzy and, and comfortable, um, we've lost something as well. There's nothing more exciting for me than going into a strange city and experiencing new food, meeting new and different people, seeing people that don't speak my language, that don't act the same as I do, and, and putting myself out there into that level of discomfort. And if everything was so inclusive and so acceptable, it all just becomes 50% gray. And I've lost something there in that. Yeah. Just before you start there, Rick, Ronnie, you've given us a new topic uh, for one of these talks, which is about being uncomfortable. Because because yeah. I because I think what you described there was about curiosity and exploration, which is different than your being uncomfortable about the precepts and your ego and the attack on your intelligence that you didn't know the unknowns, which actually then get you to reframe. And I think that we need to have a greater vocabulary that actually just isn't uncomfortable. I like to go traveling because I sometimes I feel uncomfortable or I found out that I had no understanding of some basic human needs for people who weren't like me and I, and I had to get beyond myself. So I think that'll be a really good conversation. Rick, please. Well, it, it occurs to me that one of the themes that I heard both Dan and, and Ronnie talk to at least was uh, coming out of education you know, uh, the entitlement or, or, or the advantages uh, uh, that um, the educational system can or does provide. And City University of New York had uh, for quite a while an open admissions policy uh, where anyone who applied uh, was admitted. And um, uh, that's sort of the opposite of uh, the elite universities uh, uh, setting criteria that are harder and harder to uh, uh, measure up to. I think if we looked at an immigration policy that was open admissions, open borders, uh, the world would be a much better and more equitable place. But where, where I would like to go with this is uh, two very quick anecdotes. One, of course, the famous uh, joke, wasn't a joke, it was a real incident of Groucho Marx's resignation from the Friars Club in Beverly Hills. Uh, famously saying something like, I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would allow me to be joined. Uh, he had already been a member uh, brought in by uh, George Jessel. Uh, uh, he wasn't particularly someone who liked clubs, but uh, people are excluded from clubs, uh, uh, from academic institutions, from countries uh, for reasons uh, uh, that we all know. And, and, you know, and, and by making a joke of it and resigning, um, you know, uh, uh, that Marx uh, talked about, you know, a more egalitarian society in a, in, in, in a comedic way. It wasn't all that funny. Uh, but the song that I think more than anything epitomizes the discussion uh, was written by someone I don't know, Billy Page, uh, and recorded uh, by Dobie Gray, who, again, uh, um, I don't know, but you all know the song, or at least all white males of a certain age know the song. It's called The In Crowd. Yeah, I'm in with the in crowd. Yeah. I know what the in crowd knows. Uh, I'm in with the in crowd. I go where the in crowd goes. Um, you know what the flip sign, uh, flip side of that song was when it was recorded by Dobie Gray in in 1964. Yeah, man. 
so so to your point john you know um uh it's it's not just that we're white you know it's i don't know who's missing who was invited and who couldn't make it but i think we need to see a radical gender rebalancing uh uh, you know, we almost had a woman mayor in New York for the first time within 8,000 votes in the Democratic primary, uh, long overdue. Uh, you know, uh, the in crowd uh, has been misogynist and racist and uh, worse, and, uh, and that has to change. So there's, there's, yeah, and there's a couple of framings that I could have about the people who are here. Every one of you is, you're generous beyond fault. You understand about being uncomfortable and you're prepared to walk into a room where you're uncomfortable. And you've had enough match practice with me on calls that you know it's a safe place. My challenge is working out how to find other people who are generous, other people who want to stumble and help them understand that it's a safe place and walk them into the room, okay? I think that last point about knowing it's a safe place might be, of course, there's priorities. So yesterday somebody dropped out because of a client meeting, so that's a priority exclusion. I think some of the others may be because they're not feeling safe place and that there won't be an attack on them. And that's why, that's why Ronnie, that discussion about about what feeling uncomfortable is such an important thing that we do because if we can't help people to learn how to be uncomfortable and where safe places are, they're going to pull back. And, and I read an article yesterday which I referred to uh, everybody's comments is now the nail for somebody else's hammer, which I thought was such a beautiful description. So you make a comment and somebody just then starts hammering down on your comment and beats you up. And you go, who, who wants to be a nail head? And, and that's, I'm making sure that we don't have that. Nobody gets attacked. Everyone gets Nails attacked. hold it together. Sorry? <laughs> nails hold it together. <laughs> Especially white nails. <laughs> so here we are, five white nails. Okay, right. Look, I'm going to go through a wrap-up round, everybody. This is, I've loved had the breadth that we've had here. This will be really good for the intelligence report. So, Dan, help us out. Take us home. What's your final thoughts here about inclusion? What haven't we covered? What have we nailed? Well, boy, tough thing to wrap up. I do think that there is a, um, I think that the key to all of this is empathy. And mm -hmm. if you don't have empathy, then you're not gonna be that interested in including people. And I do think it does start early in life but I do think it is something that maybe can be learned or maybe people can get turned around. But I do think at the core of all of this, and I think that's at the core of all our discussion, is empathy. We really need to include everyone and it goes a little bit deeper. We, do, we want to include everyone. I think that's great. And, uh, and it's interesting, uh, on the other calls where we had people uh, from diverse backgrounds, we also reflected on why did they have to speak in the as a sole representative of that piece of diversity? So there's another there's another problem. They're just humans. It happens to be they come from diverse. So I think that empathy is there. Like first thing is they're humans. A second dimension is that they may have some particular group or a group culture that they represent. So I think empathy is really important there. John, what's your wrap up? Sorry, missed the button there. <laughs> 
Um, my wrap up is start with a thanks to all of you, just in general. Um, this is a, this is a group of people that is very easy to be able to just speak and ramble and try and and figure out where your mind is on something, even though it, it especially for me, I feel like I, I very rarely head in a straight line. Um, and yeah, I hope that at the end of the day, that people who tune in and, and watch these wherever they're sitting can understand that I, I like, I genuinely believe that if we can have more conversations like we have in these groups once a month or whatever it might be, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be moving towards a world that has more inclusion um, and, and whatever that might be. So yeah, I'm going to leave it as a, a, just a thanks to everybody that's ever been involved in these. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, and you know, it, thank you to you and everybody. If you don't trust me to share your minds and think that you're in a safe space, we don't come up with any of these insights. So it's, it's a collective mutual beneficial there. Rick, how about for you? You know, I start with etymology and the Latin root for inclusion surprised the hell out of me. Inclusionum uh, means uh, confinement, particularly relevant during the pandemic, and a, a shutting up. Uh, so I'll shut up. <laughs> It's really, it's so, so it's about confinement. It's about, you know, think of the Decameron, you know, as a confinement that was inclusive or was it, you know, uh, you know so, self-selected. So the desire to be, well, and I suppose it goes back to the in crowd, isn't it? It's the inclusion is that you get to be in the in crowd. It's, you know, going back to my little diagram that I had here. I, I, I think the in crowd has to be large enough so that everybody could be in in it larger circle you know the size of the universe okay <laughs> universal well, design so that we don't feel that we've excluded you you are the final comment here take us out all right so i think um it's about being more curious um going places and doing things that are outside of our comfort zone and i think that's going to lead to more inclusiveness cool you know very succinct there everybody thank you so much that i am always so humbled to go get access to minds like yours to be able to go talk about topics in a safe environment this has been an absolute delight and pleasure thank you for your participation and time thank you thank you thanks